Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to Dr. Jade Teeter. He's a renowned expert in hormones, metabolism, stress, and fat loss, and we do a deep dive into these topics and the impact that our own script or the stories we tell ourselves has on all of these areas. Now, Jade has been a mentor from afar for me for a number of years in my clinical practice, and he is such an expert in all of these areas. We talk on the topics I've just mentioned. We talk on trauma. We do some sort of quick fire questions as well, because of course his naturopathic medicine influences Jade's practice and and what he recommends. And if you have any interest in any of these areas, then this is going to be a super informative episode for you. For those of you unfamiliar with Jade, he is an integrative physician, author and sought-after expert in the realm of metabolism and self-development. He has spent the last 25 years immersed in the study of strength and conditioning, hormonal metabolism and the psychology of change and success. He's the founder and creator of the international health and fitness company Metabolic Effect and the author of several books including the bestsellers Metabolic Effect Diet and The Metabolic Aftershock. He also has a podcast, The Next Level Human, which we have linked in the show notes and has contributed to textbooks in the field of naturopathic medicine. He is now focused on his own company, Jade Teeter, that combines his medical and fitness knowledge with his expertise in self-development and mindset change. Just a reminder, the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast listening platform. That increases the visibility of the podcast out there in amongst literally thousands of other podcasts. So more people get the opportunity to learn from guests that I have on the show, like Dr. Jade Teeter. All right, team, enjoy this conversation. Dr. Jade Teeter, I'm super stoked to have you on my show this morning. Um, As I just very briefly mentioned as we um, got on the call, I feel like I've been following you since I was a teenager, which can't actually be right because there's not that many years between (laughs) us. But you're along in this field. Yeah, I've been around a bit. Mickey, it's it's great to be here and to talk to you. And yeah, I mean, I started really um, in... Uh, well, really at 15 years old. So that would have been like 1988. Uh, I'm going to be 50 this year. I started in natural medicine in 2004 is when I graduated from uh, Bastyr University. And um, my first book was in 2010. 
you know, so yeah, it's it's been over 20 years in natural medicine, but over, you know, what, 35 years in the health fitness field. Uh, actually, at 15, I started and people always raise their eyebrows at that. But that's the first time I collected money for actually training people and writing programs and designing workout programs. That's how I started. And so it does feel like I've been around a lot. Um, and of course, you know, I've evolved, uh, you know, sort of in in what I've done since then. But but yeah, I mean, it's it's been an amazing journey. And of course, so you and I both teach this stuff. And of course, I still love it. And I'm highly engaged and always trying to learn. And there's so much to learn in this space. There, I 100% agree. And Jade, what I find super interesting is that um, your book, which, I, which was probably one of the first books I had on diet and sort of training, um, which I was super interested in, that was different from the sort of norm, you know, eat your fruit and veg and cut out all the fat or whatever. Um, it's still innovative today. And I think that your the concepts and how you think about metabolism aren't things that people are taught. Like I would doubt that a lot of this you were actually taught in your naturopathic uh, medical degree. Um, when did you start thinking about metabolism the way that you do? And how did yeah, you? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, interesting. I mean, from my perspective, it really came as a lot of things do just through clinical practice. I mean, basically, you start seeing that the way that we think about things doesn't work. I'll tell you what, Mickey, I saw two trends very early on. So that book you're talking about was written way back in 2010. And it was probably one of the first books, or at least one of the first ones that I'm aware of that made this distinction between calories and hormones and how we can't just worry about how little we're eating. We also have to worry about how hungry we are and how stress impacts hunger and how lack of sleep impacts hunger. You know, stress and sleep don't have calories, but they certainly will influence how many calories we uh, eat and, and or are motivated to burn. And so from my perspective, what I started to see is that the model that we were using was wrong. That was the first thing I noticed that, uh, and by the way, when I say wrong, let's clarify that a little bit because not completely wrong. Certainly calories matter. It's just that there was something missing. Um, so that was the first thing I noticed. Uh, the second thing that I noticed in the field is that we were running into trends all the time. In fact, you know, I've been around long enough to see multiple trends. Uh, the first trend was the low fat trend, at least that I was a part of. And then there was sort of the keto diet the first time around, Atkins and kind of stuff like that. And then the zone diet and then the paleo diet and then, you know, fasting and then fasting came back around and keto came back around. And the trend I saw is that, uh, you know, we are individuals. Uh, we each are as different metabolically uh, as we are physically. We really are. We're different in our physiology, our psychology, our preferences and our practical circumstances. We vary from person to person. The entire industry still does not um, really deal with that well or, uh, you know, create, you know, any kind of solutions for individuals. We don't talk about that. And one big thing, by the way, Mickey, is the fact that, you know, uh, men and women are different. No, duh. I've spent my whole life dealing with the biological differences between the male and the female physiology. And, but not only that, each person is different. And then I would say the next trend is that in psychology is completely ignored. Uh, you know, it's, it's not really given a, uh, you know, sort of an understanding and we can't change our habits without changing sort of our identity and the stories attached to that identity. So I came about this to answer your question uh, from seeing 
where people were failing and they were usually failing in those three areas. There was more to it than just calories. They were not being, uh, their programs were not being individualized for them and their psychology was not being accounted for. And so most of my work was around these areas. And I would even say still today, these areas are not uh, well uh, addressed. Uh, completely. And I think, you know, I've heard you say that you that you look at not just sort of physical development and physical transformation, but that sort of personal transformation as well, which which to me sort of brings in the sort of psychological element. And and also, Jade, I've seen you mentioned that how your practice has evolved and your interest has evolved. And I understand you're beginning a PhD or you're in the throes of mm-hmm. of yeah. that in this mm-hmm. in this area. Um, I've heard you talk about trauma as well most recently and how that impacts uh, our physical health and and at the very, you know, and sort of to bring it back to your initial sort of interest in helping people improve body composition. Um, how, like, can we chat a little bit about this and that relationship? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it it seems sort of out there and esoteric, but it's actually very simple physiology. The bottom line is we humans have a very fine tuned mechanism for adapting to threat. And uh, so if we're in threat, everyone's heard of sort of the fight, flight, you know, sort of freeze response. That's the response that we have when we're under threat. And when we are under threat, what ends up happening is we are utilizing resources and we are hyper vigilant and we are using nutrients and fuel. And we are not, it's kind of like a light switch. It's either on or off, right? If threat is turned on, then rest, regeneration, repair is turned off. And these two things are like switches. And so one of the things that happens with trauma in particular, and and trauma is a tough word because usually when we think of trauma, we think of the big T traumas like, you know, rape and physical abuse and, uh, you know, psychological, you know, manipulation and all of these things. But trauma could be very simple things, uh, you know, um, betrayal from, you know, a lover, Uh, you know, having a mom who was busy, you know, loved you, but was just super busy or having a dad who was you know, loved you, but was absent and working or monetary concerns and what these things do, any kind of trauma that registers as a threat when we are young, basically turns on the threat response and makes it less likely we can get into the rest and recovery response. And so we see people who have adverse childhood experiences, so-called ACEs, we see that their uh, stress reactivity is either turned on in a hypervigilant state or they can't react at all. And this has consequences in hunger and cravings and uh, behaviors around self-soothing with food and even the ability to lose weight. So it's actually fairly straightforward uh, metabolic uh, mechanisms. We just don't talk about them a lot, again, because uh, we're sort of focused on, you know, the look good, uh, you know, uh, live longer uh, function better, you know, type of situation instead of like living better wholly, you know, in psychology and uh, in physicality. And I feel like the things that you're mentioning, Jade, aren't, they're not immediately obvious to people. Like if I think about myself and like my childhood, like in fact, I think I can think of a couple of instances actually that really did impact on how I felt about myself and, and the, my, if I say quote unquote relationship with food or, you know, like something that someone said, an adult said when I was younger and like that isn't, people wouldn't necessarily think that's traumatic, but 
it has actually influenced me in a number of ways in my adult years and the fact that I even remember it sort of suggests that it was probably like a, a moment like one of those little teas if you like. like do you think yeah. that we just dismiss some of these things as being unimportant because they're not like the big trauma? 100% that's what it is. In fact, I keep uh, fooling around and, you know, um, uh, with a di- trying to come up with a different uh, sort of name for this because it really is not trauma. One of the things we talk about, we talk about it as trauma in science, but we have to remember, clinically speaking, most of our clients won't speak about what we're talking about as trauma. For for example, I had a very loving mother. I have a what I would call a mother wound, but I had a very loving mother, a very present mother. What the issue though was is that she was very volatile, emotionally speaking. And so what that did for me, despite the fact she was present, uh, she never left me, she was very loving. Loving is that I, she was unpredictable. That then had consequences in me being a people pleaser, not trusting female emotions. You can see how that can begin to impact on your future experience. And what happens is when we're young, we don't form memories in full sort of a ways. We form them in fragments. We're also not completely conscious. And so things happen whether we're a child, a teenager, or early adult, and we write a story about the world. We write a story about safety and security. We write a story about acceptance and belonging. We write a story about uh, self-determination and and autonomy and authenticity. And these things then impact on how we show up. So how might that look in your particular case, right? Let's not necessarily call it trauma, or in my particular case, maybe we don't call it trauma, but maybe we call it a wound, a psychological uh, insult that then caused us to create a narrative in our head about the world being safe or not, whether we are accepted or not, whether we are uh, you know, valuable or not. And then, of course, we will do any number of things to self-soothe. To some people, that turns into sitting on the couch. For other people, that turns into chronic exercise. For some people, that turns into food avoidance. For other people, that turns into uh, eating all the foods. You know, and, and usually, these self-soothing behaviors show up in the ways that most of us know. Drugs, sex, food. These kinds of things uh, are very self-soothing to our nervous system. And so this stuff absolutely shows up. So if you're someone listening to this and you're like, I've always had this, you know, quote, dysfunctional relationship with food. What I might say to you is, sure, it could just be the fact that you have cravings because you're over-exercising. It also might be the fact that you're using food as a form of self-love because you wrote a story about acceptance and belonging a long time ago when you were not consciously and logically aware that you were doing so. And this stuff needs to be unpacked for not just some people, but I would say for the vast majority. Now, is this the case for everyone across the board? Of course not. But this is something that is being completely ignored. And it is obviously playing a role in our metabolism, Mm -hmm. in our physiology, and in our phenotype, the way we look, function, and feel. Mm -hmm. Jade, how does self-sabotage, how does that play into self-sabotage? You know, I talk to a number of people and they get to a particular point in their weight loss journey, for want of a better word, and and then they start almost unconsciously doing things to sort of reverse that progress so they can't get past a certain point. Like, is... Does this play, are these two related, what we're talking about? 
They certainly can be. I mean, sometimes that can simply be. An, and we, and this is what's hard about having discussions like this, right? Because it's very nuanced. Sometimes that's just a matter of general physiology. You start losing fat, leptin levels go up, cravings go up, and it's just a natural compensatory ancient response to starvation. Sometimes it's that. Other times it could be in a cliche form where someone who had, um, you know, emotional traumas around sex and attention in the romantic realm, all of a sudden starts losing weight, starts getting that attention again, triggers some of those subconscious wounds and they begin uh, to eat again. And so it and, and every, you know, so I, I, I chose one very simple physi physiological thing and one very cliche psychological thing, but there's everything sort of in between. Uh, one of the other things, though, that I think is very important as we have this discussion is that we don't really and this is just, uh, you know, sort of a uh, a very ABC type of thing we need to keep in mind. Very simple. What happens when people begin on these journeys is they don't actually spend the time to think about their authentic selves. Now, when we think about, we, we hear the term authentic self a lot, right? And we that tends to mean be who you are for most people. But the fact of the matter is, is that who are you being authentic to, right? You can be authentic to a past self. You can be authentic to your current self. That's not who we really want to be authentic to, right? We want to be authentic to our better future self, the leaner, fitter, healthier, more psychologically uh, healthier and well-adjusted human. And what happens is what we do is we make plans around what we've done in the past. We try to look at our behaviors in the past and we try to change them for the current moment instead of living into and saying, if I was going to be my best self, my authentic self, how does that person a sort of show up. And so when you're thinking about this, what happens is the reason a lot of people revert back is because they don't actually have a purpose-driven vision of a future self. You know, why are they actually trying to look good, feel good, function better, etc.? If you're not very clear on that, vanity concerns will only get you so far, right? You know, because what ends up happening is you start realizing the six-pack, the leaner body, the fact that I'm thinner doesn't give you the safety and security, the acceptance and belonging and the autonomy and sort of a purpose and meaning that you were really after. And so what happens, it's like anything else that we are seeking, whether power or pleasure or popularity. We know those are very poor substitutions for purpose. And so one of the things I would also say happens frequently, very frequently, is you have to attach these health and fitness pursuits to something bigger than just, I want to look better in a swimsuit, uh, or I want to just be healthier and have better cholesterol. It has to be attached to something like, I want to touch, move, and inspire people. And by me being fit and vital and having the energy to do that, I can show up and be the example or be the experience. And that's when you start going, okay, now this persona of this leaner, healthier, more vital, energetic person is direct alignment with how I want to matter and make a difference in the world. Those are usually the people who make it last because they're doing it for something other than vanity concerns. And all of us who've put, got some age on us, I mean, once you get past your 20s, you're probably nodding your head and being like, yeah, I agree, Jade, I understand. But a lot of us in our 30s and 40s are still struggling with that because vanity is not a, enough of a motivating factor anymore, right? Like we've got kids, we've got other things that we care about other than just looking good in a bathing suit. And, and we're frustrated because in our younger years, motivation from vanity 
identity concerns was a real thing and it really mattered. But as we age, that becomes less and less of a thing. And so we need to find a, a different reason, a different motivation for our pursuits in health and fitness. And this has a lot to do with purpose. And so that would be another reason I would say psychologically people fall down. So yes, it can be attached to trauma. Yes, it can just be overwhelming compensatory reactions from the metabolism. Uh, more times than not, though, it's the inability to see our authentic selves in the future and modeling that behavior and developing a relationship with that identity instead of being stuck in our current or past identity, if that makes sense. Makes total sense. And what I will say for, first is I love how there are very few people who are able to put both of them together. You know, they've got clinical psychologists understand the trauma element. You've got people who are experts in metabolism understand the physiological sort of piece. And I love how you can like see all areas of, of that day. That's, I think that's really unique. Um, and I also think that that sounds like a lot of work, actually. You know, like people, it's so easy to pick up a diet. And to pick up an exercise plan, to turn your brain off, and to just uh, execute. And I'm not suggesting, oh, simple, maybe, rather than easy. Whereas you're talking about sort of really unpacking um, a lot of stuff that people probably um, would prefer just to not even think about, you know, and don't really sort of see the relevance, I guess. Yeah. And, and I would agree 100%. I'm even with them, right? Even though I do this work, I agree. And that is the big problem. However, we also know that it gets pretty tiring after the 10th, 12th, 13th time where we lost the weight, regained the weight, or get some health and then are less healthier. So we get tired of these patterns. What happens is life has a way of whispering in your ear and then tapping you on the shoulder and then shoving you in the back. And then finally, kicking you as hard as it can in the stomach to make you pay attention. And so what happens is after these recurrent patterns, these struggles that occur again and again, these stuck emotions, we start waking up to the fact that, oh, this is not really working effectively for me. And that's when we start paying attention. So one way or the other, you're going to get here. And so you may might as well start paying attention. But let me try to make it very easy for people because we can get very confused. Oh, there's all this stuff I have to do. One of the things that I like to do is just tell people, you know, think about an actor, right? There's two types of actors. There's a traditional actor and there's more of a method actor. A traditional actor is someone who, when the director says action, they start playing the part. And when the director says cut, they stop playing the part. And this is very much like a dieter, right? Which basically like, you know, when I'm at a meal, I'll try my best, especially when I'm around people and they're watching, I'm going to try to look the part. I'm going to try to go to the gym. But what happens is you're still mostly aligned with your old self. You know, the dieter is just this sort of like, it's like playing a role. You know, you go in, but 90% of the time you're the couch potato type person. That, that's who you are. The other type of actor is the method actor, which once they know they're playing this role, they begin to play the role immediately. They research every aspect of the role. They start living it immediately. They start to get into the feeling of it. And it doesn't matter if the director says action or cut because they've already been playing the part. They just basically go right in. They continue playing the part and then they you know, uh, go forever playing that part. And what happens is with method actors, they sometimes have a difficult time realizing who their old self was. So the easiest way to think about this is that think about I'm going to be a method actor. I'm simply going to play into the role of a healthy, fit, functional me. What does that person look like? That's how come I don't like this saying, fake it till you make it. 
Faking means when people are watching, you're on. And when people aren't watching, you're off. It's more like be it until you see it, which basically means whether people are watching or not. And more importantly, when they're not watching, you are being the thing. Being is an alignment in thinking, feeling, acting, and choosing. And so one of the things I do when I'm coaching people in the mental, emotional realm is I look at for that alignment. How are they thinking, feeling, acting, and choosing? What happens is most people, when they go on diets and programs, they have short-term thinking and acting. Right. But they don't have the feeling, you know, uh, part of it. And the choices are iffy. Right. Uh, the, the choices are really iffy. It's, it's kind of like if I feel like it, I'll do it. And if I'm motivated, I'll do it. And if I don't, someone who's being the thing, there is no feeling like it. Feeling has nothing to do with it. They just are. Right. Uh, that's the difference between a decision and a choice, by the way. A decision is a consideration. You know, we're considering choices. The choice is just the act. And so you have to be in alignment with thinking, feeling, acting and choosing. Your brain is watching you all the time and it's going to call bullshit on you. Whether people are watching or not, it's watching and judging you. And so this is the way to think about it, to make it simpler for yourself. You just start playing the role of the method actor and you'll start to figure it out pretty quick. Be it until you see it. Yeah. No, I love that because so many people have the script in their head that, well, they're just going to fail. They start Even before they start something in their head, they're like, well, I've failed every other time before. So, you know, why am I going to succeed this time? So they're almost only sort of half in it anyway, um, just in relation to diet. But I love that. It reminds me of the as if principle by Richard Wiseman, you know, just acting as if you are the person, but you sort of, uh, you sort of approach it much more fully. Like, and do you find Jade that when you talk to people about this idea, be it until you see it, does it take them a while to sort of uh, find their feet with it? Or actually they're like, actually that makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, like are people accepting of it in your in your... um, at first, they're accepting of it, but then they run into problems really quickly, right? Because what they what they look at is they go, when you're when you're uh, in in the mindset of a dieter, you're kind of in the in the mindset of duality. I'm either on or I'm off, yes. right? And and that is what they tend to fall prey to. So as soon as they, which they will, as soon as they run into not being perfect they go, oh, I got to go back to my old identity. That's where they get hung up. So yes, they're very excited about it, but then they they can't get out of the duality. Well, what happens to a method actor who ends up having, who's a fit person who ends up having a donut? Just think about how that person acts. The donut's not a problem because they know 90% of the time they are doing and choosing and feeling and thinking differently. So they just go, oh, so what? I had a donut. Doesn't matter. I'm not the donut. I'm not that person. I don't eat donuts on the regular basis. And they just know that in their head. So yes, people hear this. They get excited about it. They think they can do it, but they also don't realize that psychologically speaking, they're not prepared for failures that will come. And that's the major thing. Uh, and, and this comes back, by the way, right back to psychology and this aspect of, uh, well, one of the cool areas of research actually is in the area of self-compassion. Uh, what happens is if we take two different people who go on a diet and one person berates themselves every time they mess up, we can predict that that person who's very hard on themselves and very harsh on themselves and doesn't show self-compassion, we can predict that they are not going to be able to stay on that diet. Whereas the person who has self-compassion, 
for themselves and others. And there, and there's many different types of compassion, right? There's compassion for self, there's compassion for others, and then there's the ability to receive compassion from others. What we know in research is people who are harshest on themselves and have an inability to receive compassion from other people tend to have the most difficult time changing. And the reason why is because every time they mess up, they berate themselves. Now, can't we all listening know and see how that would be a pattern from you know, um, childhood age. Uh, I come from a generation where parenting was a little bit more harsh and a little bit less coddling than it is uh, today. I can be, you know, somewhat harsh on myself. Compassion wasn't necessarily, um, you know, the the uh, prominent way of being for a lot of people in their homes. And so a lot of people don't understand compassion. And so self-compassion is another one of these psychological techniques that a method actor, when they're acting that, they, they don't see it as I messed up. They see it as I had a treat during an otherwise you know, phenomenal way of being because this is just who I am, right? And so they don't see it as a cheat meal. You can even see this in people's language. It's not a cheat meal. It's more like, you know, I got I, I just enjoy food. And every once in a while, I enjoy this kind of food. They don't see it as a cheat. Right. And so there is this idea that people carry around with them that it really comes down to stories, Mickey. So, like, you know, you and I can spot this in clients all the time. It's the story that people are telling themselves about the world. Uh, to me, you know, that's how some people, they, we hear this all the time and it's true, consistency and things like that. But the, the, the trick is how do you be consistent? Yeah. Right. You be consistent by, sure, choosing foods that are going to be less likely to make you hungry. Those are going to be things like, you know, lean proteins, fiber, water-based foods, et cetera, things like that. But you also do that by learning techniques uh, that are proven to, um, you know, put you in a place of uh, acceptance of yourself. There's a whole therapy called accept acceptance and commitment therapy that essentially addresses this stuff. And it works. But uh, if you're someone who's not used to this way of doing things and you're sort of like, you know, the harsh coach inside, go harder, push harder, do more, you know, get over it, you know, no pain, no gain, like all those stories in your head, these are, tend to be the people who continue to struggle. Yeah, I completely agree. And and the people who are like, no, I'm just stubborn. And they're not really meaning about their diet. They're just sort of in life, you know, like if I'm talking to a client and I'm like, well, can't you do X, Y, Z? They're like, oh, no, well, I'm just stubborn. I'd never do that. You know, even mm -hmm. those statements there immediately tell me that this person's not open to... Um, looking at a different way of doing things beyond what they sort of want to do, which is related, but a slight tangent to to what you're talking about. But it's a story. Well, no, I actually themselves. think I actually think it's directly related because you know, um, you know, if we look at psychology and we look at uh, psychological profiles like Myers Briggs and some of these things, these these things aren't well studied, and there's not a lot of evidence. But there is a lot of evidence for the big five or the big six personality traits, and openness is one of them. Openness to new experience. Experience, these individuals who are closed off to thinking and doing anything differently. That's why I say, what are your, what are you being authentic to? Which identity? A past self, a current self, or a future self? Someone who says something like, I'm just stubborn, is being authentic to a past 
or current self and is not able to be open to uh, doing things psychologically differently. And they don't even know that that's the problem. They just think it's about, I need to go get another diet book. And, and that's why we continue to run into problems. Now, again, let's not make this about everyone, but I would argue it's the it's a, a good sizable chunk of people, perhaps the majority. Yeah. Okay. So you brought up those psychological um, quizzes or types, and I was wanting, I was wanting your opinion on this actually. So mm. we did one at work like a couple of years ago and um, not Myers-Briggs, it was something else. And it told me that I wasn't a completer finisher, you know, that, and it wasn't just, it told me like other people, you know, you got feedback on people and this was the um, sort of resounding thing about me. And I'm like, so part of me is like, all oh, that explains all of the reasons why I start things and then I lose interest and I move on and I just leave this thing unfinished. And I almost felt a little bit like let off the hook, like, okay, cool. Mm. I understand that now. But then part of me was like, actually, well, that's bollocks. I look at all the things that I have actually completed, you know, mm -hmm. like I feel like different personality types, well, I'm talking about personality types here, but, but I feel like there are different ways that you can, you can approach these things. But sometimes these personality types are sort of unhelpful in that they continue this narrative about the type of person we are rather than allowing us to open up to be someone else. I don't know. Mm. I was just thinking about that. I think that's exactly right. I think we have to be very careful and think about a lot of these tests. Um, what they're essentially doing is they're asking you a bunch of questions. And we all know when we take these, if you really pay attention to yourself when you're taking these uh, questions, you do tend to filter it through what would be the best thing to <laughs> answer here, right? So you even have to go into it to be like, I have to be completely honest here. And then all they're doing is saying back to you what you told them. But we all know based on different situations, if it was a real world situation, we may behave differently. So what it's looking at is it can point you to patterns, but uh, that's the problem because what we see and what we think, and this is another personality trait that keeps people stuck. Most people see identity as immutable, right? And they, they see it and they, they, they're, they're who they are and they're sticking to who they are. And, and actually, they also tend to see people who are like that tend to see other people like that too. We see yes. this in romantic partnerships, right? Where this one person has changed and the other person will not allow them to change. They've got them in a box. They're not taking them out of the box. And that ruins the relationship. The truth of the matter is uh, change is inevitable. So the idea that, think about this, ask, let's all ask ourselves right now, do you believe people can change or not? That will tell you right there, your answer to that question will tell you an awful lot about your ability to, to change. And so to me, absolutely people change. People change all of the time. I see it. However, most people, if you ask them that question, can people change? They're going to be like, mm, no, not really. Yeah. When in reality, change is inevitable. It's just whether we're guiding that change or not. Well, and, and I was going to ask you about that as well, because I feel like some people are a little bit stuck in, in the patterns that they have because they're afraid of what others think around them. Like, because once they start changing their behavior, suddenly that changes their interactions with people and their relationships with people. And that's not a comfortable space for someone to sort of be in, you know, mm. and and because I I get that a lot actually from clients. What you just brought up is uh, perhaps the most difficult aspect of being human. We are pack animals, essentially. 
you know, other people's emotions are contagious upon us. We are not islands unto ourselves. So when we want to change, we have got to account for everyone around us. Now, here's typically what people do, though. There's an easy shift here. Let's go back to playing the method actor. Do you want to be the person who is inspiring and an example for everyone around you? Or do you want to be the person who sort of follows everyone around you? All of us have the unique ability to learn from others, but we also have the unique ability to teach others and to create things for even people we don't even know. So what happens is you have to start to begin to understand we're here for three reasons and three reasons only, to learn, to teach, and to love. Most people stay in learning mode and that keeps them stuck with these people around them. But what happens if you take it upon yourself for your future identity and you start playing into the role of, I'm going to be the person who through my actions, not through trying to convince people, you can't convince anybody of anything. They have to convince themselves. And there's interesting research on this, you know, uh, the study of awe, this experience of like something so grandiose and big that is beyond us. Usually we think we get this with nature and things like that. Well, guess what research has shown is people report as the greatest aspect of awe in their lives. Other people, other people's other what other people do, other people's ability to handle struggles. In other words, we are an example and experience for the world. We inspire other people. In fact, we are the major source of inspiration for the other people in our lives. We just don't take that on. And so what we do is we instead go, I'm going to just you know, play this role here instead of going, I'm going to become, you don't even have to announce this to anybody either. All you have to do is say, I'm going to begin to slowly but surely live into this role and I am going to become an example for my family, for my significant other, for my coworkers, for, for my peers and an experience. And what you'll find is as soon as you begin to change and show up differently, that is, um, it is, uh, you know, difficult for other people to just jump on board right away. Because if you change, they must change. This is the this is the the whole dynamic of us humans. However, if you do this with love and you don't try to force it, you know, on them or anything like that, what ends up happening is oftentimes a sizable portion of those people will come right along with you. We probably all had the experience. I certainly have when I decided to go into naturopathic medical school instead of conventional medical school. Everyone told me, and by the way, this was at a time uh, in the uh, you know, sort of 90s, early 90s, mid 90s, where naturopathic medicine and alternative functional medicine was not a thing. It was considered, you know, witch doctory, basically. And most of my family and most of my friends and uh, actually my advisor at, at, at school who was uh, wanted me to go to uh, the medical school that I was going to go to before I switched was very upset with me. Uh, however, once I made the choice and now, you know, sort of look at the career that I've carved out for myself, being authentic to Jade, everyone's on board. And this was so funny to me because some of them even take credit for it. I, I always <laughs> knew you were going to be, you know, this and that. Or, and by the way, you know, it doesn't matter that I've had outward uh, cultural level, you know, success. I'm happy. And, you know, so to me, people sometimes it's funny. Recently, I had a run in with someone on social media, a pretty big influencer that, I saw that. You know, sort of, yeah, sort of called me out or whatever. And it's essentially they're calling me a quack. And, you know, to me, I go, that's right. I am a quack. You know, I, I am, you know, I, I totally own that because I just go, there was a conscious, mis I mean, not a, a conscious choice, not a mistake. Yeah. Right. Like this was a choice. And what that's what's so powerful about when you choose for yourself 
because you're so confident, you don't you don't really care because you're you're so happy. That's the difference. Uh, whereas if you're not confident and you're kind of wishy washy and you're not making the full choice, then yes, every time someone says something to you, it's going to make you you know sort of back up and slow down. But if you're purposeful in your choice and you're just like, this is the direction I'm going. What ends up happening is uh, most of your friends and family and the people who really love you are on board. And guess what? You're always going to have haters. Even if you stay still, you're going to have haters. So sometimes I think being alive is really just about the courage to be disliked. You know, like it, it's it, it really is. Yeah, uh, that's actually quite hilarious. You bring it up because I totally saw that, and I saw the thousands and thousands, thousands of like supporting comments people like me who have followed you for years and they're like, do you not even know who this guy is? You know, like it was, it, it, but you um, handled that so beautifully and really showed that exactly what you're talking about there, that you're so comfortable in what you do and you're so, um, I get, you're comfortable with what you do, not only comfortable, you're happy and you really own it um, because, yeah, which was quite different from the post itself because that person is really well known for like trying to roast someone on social media despite the fact he's actually very knowledgeable in his area and he's probably and 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 he has like I think it shows his his insecurities I think more than anything else that's what I get from a lot of his posts yeah and you know it's funny when you when you when you're in love with what you're doing in life like I I think he's great yeah. you, know, you know I really yeah, don't yeah. I really don't have a you know, a real problem with him other than I just think it's hypocritical, you know, um, but, th but that's <laughs> yeah. all. We, so what? I'm hypocritical in certain ways too. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's uh, it's just a really funny thing, but it, isn't it nice though, Mickey, when we, and it's, and by the way, I'm not perfect. I have my own, that, that part I've just grown up and it doesn't, doesn't bother me. There's other areas that are, you know, more distressing to me. So I understand that we all have this. However, there is power in ownership. And I do think that uh, when we're talking about change, it's really about owning things. And this brings me to something, you know, that that I think is important here. When you are trying to change, you know, metabolically, you're trying to lose weight, and you're you're looking at diet and exercise regimes and things like that. One of the aspects is ownership. And, and that ownership comes around owning a diet and a lifestyle you can actually live with, love and own. In other words, part of the reason a lot of people fail in this space is because what they're doing is they're outsourcing the diet to other people. And they don't even like a lot of this stuff. You know, there's people going on keto diets who don't even really like meat that much. Right. And so there's this idea of going, you know, what do you love? Right. And of course we can't, as humans, we all know, we can't do everything we love. You know, I love pasta, wine, cheese. I can't just eat pasta, wine, and cheese all day, every day, but I'm certainly not going to never have that stuff. In other words, I'm trying to design a diet exercise lifestyle that allows me to look, feel, and function well, but also to enjoy life. You know, I oftentimes think about this field is really funny because we we act as if, and you know, I, I remember, you know, again, I've been in the game a long time, as you mentioned, but I remember going through a phase where I thought diet could cure everything. You know, and and certainly I think diet is the most powerful, one of the most powerful things we can do for our health. But to me, it's really interesting when you look at blue zone studies and stuff like that, people go, oh, is it because of the way they exercise? Is it because of the way they eat? Well, these people do a lot of other things. They drink a lot in certain of these areas. But you know what they do have? They have connection. They have community. They have purpose. 
They have belonging. I believe it's really about the psychological components of these uh, these places. And 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 we have a lot of evidence for this. This is why you can have cultures that do, you know, people talk about toxins all the time. Toxins this, toxin that. The, the, the number one toxin that we know of, then we know that it has no real positive benefits is alcohol. Yet we have all these cultures who consume an awful lot of this toxin, but do it around other people. And they don't seem to have the ill effects from it. So to me, the the paradox that we talk about, like the French paradox, is about yes. the community. Yeah. The 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 Greek paradox is about the community. The Asian paradox is about the community. Perhaps what uh, at least you know we're, you and I are in, in different places, but in the United States, what I think is the problem primarily is the disconnect, the loneliness, and and most of the Western. Uh, countries are suffering from this as well, when in reality, it's getting into touch with our dharma, our purpose, bringing that to our community. And um, when you do that, your diet, your exercise is a tool to help you do that job rather than a tool to help you have power and popularity. You know, it's like all of a sudden, you know, we have we had racism, we had sexism, we had all now we have healthism. You know, it's basically like I'm better than you because I'm healthier and fitter than you. When that is not the way that uh anyone really wants to make a difference and matter in life. And, and it's a mistake. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And and you mentioned community. And I, of course, like my mind very quickly goes to the last three years with the pandemic and just the, the, uh, the division that it caused here for us in New Zealand and, and undoubtedly, you know, like sort of worldwide. And I just wondered to what extent this plays into people's health habits now, only because I'm still talking to people, you know, it's been 18 months since our borders have been open. I think that's about right. And and yet, um, so, you know, we've, as a country, in all sort of intents and purposes, we should have moved on by now, but people are still using that and, or it's a reason for their inability to get back into healthy lifestyle habits. They're like, oh, because during lockdown I did X, Y, Z, and now it's just super hard for them. And I just wonder what sort of underlying stress still um, sort of pervades or exists because of that due to some yeah, of those things. It's absolutely huge. And think about that. We talked about the idea that change is inevitable. That was a change. And then look now, people are attached to that old identity. Yeah. Right. So they they went in with a particular identity. Then they have a lockdown identity and now they can't get out of that identity. So yeah. it's whether or not you're controlling uh, the change or not. Uh, to me, the pandemic was incredibly eye opening in the way uh, that uh, people showed up. To me, Mickey, it's duality thinking. Like, you know, we talk about enlightenment and self-development and stuff like that. It's a very simple concept. It's it's the fact that most people, 90 plus percent, I would say, think in dualities. They think in black and white, up and down. So they have to take teams. I call this culture level thinking. One of the best things you can do if you want to make a diet and exercise program work, if you just want to be happier, if you want to connect more, if you want to be more open, if you want to understand what we're doing on the planet is to get rid of duality thinking, right? It's like this diet's better than this diet. Uh, you know, this political party is better than this political party. Uh, you know, um, you should wear a mask. You shouldn't wear a mask. You should get a vaccine. You shouldn't get a vaccine. This is the sickness of duality. And it permeates everything that we humans do. Uh, a non-dual thinker doesn't get caught up in that 
kind of stuff. And then that frees you to be able to find the diet that works for you, to be able to find the exercise program that works for you, to be able to find the uh, way of relating to people uh, that works for you. So I honestly think psychologically speaking, it's duality thinking that is the major problem that is sort of like, you know, if we want to talk about viruses, the duality virus is probably the most dangerous virus for a human to have, and we're yeah. all infected with it. Yeah, nice. Jade, do you think that everyone needs to do this work before they go on a diet? I, you know, like I, like what, what are your thoughts around that? Is this a compulsory no, element? No, I don't at, at all, actually. A, a lot of what we've been talking about today is it, it's not something uh, that you uh, need to do. It's something that you need to be aware of, though, because what happens is I was just talking to a friend recently where they're just like, well, once I'm ready to start, like once I've got it planned out, I'll take the step. And what I said to him, is, I said, the problem with that is you won't know what the plan is until you take the step. Right. And a lot of us forget about this. And so I think what happens is, is that diet and exercise uh, and is something that we should be doing anyway. It is just something that uh, is, um, you know, there are many things that are just built into being human that uh, modern day has circumvented and it causes problems. So, no, you don't need to think like me. You don't need to go get a psychology degree or a philosophy degree. You don't need to go necessarily get a life coach or something like that. But what you need to do is be aware of once you begin the process, once you start, and where I would say, don't start with any of this. What I would say is if you're listening to me and you're just like, oh my gosh, Jade, I was hoping this was going to be you know, a diet and exercise thing because I'm just really trying to lose weight and I want to get started. I would just say, okay, two things, stop eating junk food and start walking. Plain and simple, just that. Nothing else. Don't worry about all the metabolism stuff. Don't don't worry about all the latest diet stuff. Don't worry about all this psychology stuff I just talked about. Just start doing that. And then what will happen is now you're playing the role. Now you're the method actor. Without us even knowing it, you're stepping into that. And what happens is that will begin to get the snowball rolling. You'll start feeling a little bit better. You'll start paying a little bit more attention. Just in that one statement, stop eating junk food and start walking is going to get your mind thinking like that method actor, right? Okay, well, what's junk food? Is this junk food? Is that junk food? And you'll begin the process of learning and experimenting and changing. And so long as your psychology is primed to be like, I'm just going to play this role and I'm going to see where it takes me. In other words, you know, you've arrived when arrival is no longer the goal. This is a process, not a prescription. So you just start the process. You just get on the path and you let it take you where you want to go. And then you might say, Wow, you know, Mickey, Jade, I was listening to you guys on a podcast, you know, years ago. And one of the things that I did is I just started the process and I started walking and I never lifted weights and I never did any metabolic conditioning stuff. And, you know, I stopped eating all junk food, but I kept my wine in. And wow, I lost, you know, 50 pounds, 60 pounds, and, you know, whatever it is. And this is how it works. Now, other people might choose to go more with it. You know, they, you also might say, hey, Mickey Jade, I listened to this podcast, you know, two years ago, and now I'm in the Tour de France, you know, and I'm doing X, Y, Z. The point is what will happen is when you take these steps and you put your health and your fitness up front and you do it uh, with this psychological awareness of engaging in the process, you're going to go to beautiful places. However, if you start outsourcing that stuff, do you expect me to give you all the answers or you expect Mickey to give you all the answers or you expect a book to do it or a podcast to do it? Then what you're going to be doing is just decisions, right? Considerations. Oh, they said this. Oh, he said that. Oh, she said this. Oh, that book said. This. And you're going to be so confused and so overwhelmed. So to me, you start with the simple stuff. Start walking. Stop eating junk food. 
that's going to take you in the direction you need to go to. And don't do anything or pay attention to anyone who uh, starts confusing you. When you get confused, just go back to, I'm playing me. I'm playing the method actor role of me. I don't eat junk food and I don't, uh, you know, sit down. I move and I don't eat junk food. And then maybe a year from now, you're going to be like, I move, I lift weights, I don't eat junk food. And, you know, I make sure I read self-development books. And then maybe a year after that, you know, you move, you don't eat junk food, you lift weights, you eat self, you know, you do self-development books. And I decided that I'm a teacher and now I, I, I'm a health coach and I teach people this stuff. And then a year after that, you're, and you're just evolving. And that's the way to, to, to start this in my mind. You don't need to, to have a master's in psychology or be an expert in metabolism. Mm-hmm. No, I love that. And because it, you, a couple of things which I would love to comment on. One is the that what you described, like that very basic sort of almost beginner steps, like just people will build confidence that they can do it, you know? And I think confidence is the thing that's you start to, that sort of, that psychological transformation. You start to prove to yourself that you actually can do things differently and be a different person. But I also love, Jade, that you said, actually, you know, if you do want to go balls to the wall, go from zero to hero, like that's actually all right as well. Because I see, because I think people get confused in that realm as well. Like people are like, well, apparently I shouldn't overhaul my entire diet because it's not sustainable. That's not true for some people, actually. That's the only way that they can do it in order to actually be successful in the long term is to actually really, you know, like um, go all in. Um, like you said earlier on, like we're all individuals and, and what's going to work for us is is going to be, you know, different. Yeah. And the best coaches are going to be like, that's what makes you a great, you know, coach and teacher, Mickey, because a, a great coach is going to tell you that they're going to you're, you're going to come to them and say, I just really want to do it all at once. And they're, they're going to go, OK, let's see how that works. And, there, and, and by the way, whether and here here's the difference, right? The process is this. The process is whether it works or not. That's do that's duality thinking. Yeah, there's a lesson there. So you're not worried if it works or not. What you're worried about is what are the lessons I can learn to take forward? Duality thinking goes, oh, is this going to work? Oh, no, I don't know if it's going to work. Is it going to be good or is it going to be bad? The truth is there's no good or bad. There's no failure in this. It's just lessons. And, and once you get out of that thought process, and to me, that's why you just start. Because if you just address that and stop listening to all the noise, you, that, that is what keeps you from being a duality thinker. A duality thinker is always looking for considerations. They said this, but they said this, but what about this? Up, down, left, right, black, white, right? Uh, the other person just goes, there is no failure in this. It's just lessons. I'm just here to learn, teach, and love, period. And I just need to live that path. Yeah. No, I love that. Jade, I've never heard you talk about this. Maybe it's because you, ha- you don't have an opinion on it, but um, any thoughts on the health at every size, body positivity movement versus the real risks that are associated with carrying excess body fat. And you can tell my judgment there, even by the way that I say that, like, have you given any of that any thought or has it come up for you at all? Yes. And I've also looked at the research here and I would say two things. I, I feel like we have moved into the age of healthism because of duality thinking. So, you know, racism, sexism, now it's healthism. I'm healthier than you. Um, I'm thinner than you. You're fatter than me. Therefore, you're a bad person. What I'm interested in is I I don't care. We're all going to get age. This is the first thing I'll say. I do have some thoughts on this, though. But the first thing I'll say is we're all going to age. We're all going to get sick at some point. We're all going to die. It doesn't matter what you do. You biohack all you want. One day you're going to die and you're going to suffer. 
And to me, I go, what's important is, did you live a good life? Did you feel like you mattered and you made a difference? And we should be celebrating every human at all shapes and sizes. And in my mind, not telling them they're a bad human simply because they're not the healthiest or they're overweight. That's the first thing I'll say. However, to me, uh, there is definite uh, health disadvantages for most people who are overweight. So, uh, but uh, what we can see that seems to be emerging from the research, and this is very controversial, so it's probably a preliminary for us to be talking about this, is that there does seem to be that people who uh, sit around and who are lean may actually have worse health co- outcomes than people who are slightly overweight, but who move. Yeah. This isn't as clear, but certainly morbid obesity, you know, uh, is highly um, disadvantageous for your health. So to me, I think it's probably a bad message for most people to go, you know, it's okay that you're, you know, uh, you're overweight. What I would say, though, is a better message is just go like, hey, just move, start doing the things, you know, don't make weight loss because the truth is I've been in this field for, you know, a very long time. And if we are honest, most of us don't really know. It is very difficult space to take people who are very overweight. And the research hints, by the way, the recent research hints that a lot of this is programmed in development and has a lot to do with in utero exposure and the whether or not the mother is moving and how insulin sensitive she is and all of this kind of stuff. So from my perspective, we know we can make overweight people healthier if we get them moving. We don't necessarily know that we're going to be able to get the weight off all these people. So from my perspective, that's the message that I would say, health at any weight. I don't necessarily agree with that, but I think it's the wrong metric. Yeah. The right metric is we shouldn't berate people because they have a different body shape than us or they're slightly overweight or make them feel bad. That honestly is duality thinking. It's healthism. It's not healthy. It's not helping them anyway. It's non-compassion coming at the society level. Uh, Instead, what we should do is be like, hey, whether you're overweight or not, we know if you move, you're going to be healthier. And that is something they can do. We don't necessarily know that we're going to be able to reliably take fat off people. It is incredibly difficult to do. We know this because 90 plus percent of people who lose weight regain it within three years. There are very, very few people who are able to lose the weight and keep it off. But everyone can start a walking regime. And even if they can't, they can start a moving regime. No matter how big you are, you can lay on your back and move your arms and legs. Movement is what we should be focusing on, not the size of these people in my opinion. But I do not think uh, anybody who is being uh, intellectually honest at this point can say it's okay to have lots of excess body fat. If you're 10 pounds, 15 pounds overweight, you're probably fine if you're moving. If you're morbidly obese, that is a a problem. We just don't know that uh, that is all about just the fact that you, you know, eat too much. It could be other things environmental issues, you know, there's a lot we don't know. So does that, that kind of, that, yeah. that help? Yeah, yeah, mm. no, completely. No, thank you. And, and um, because we're on sort of the subject, um, I'm just interested, like I had a uh, conversation with someone yesterday, actually, and she said, you know, she has a girlfriend who has told her the only way she's going to lose weight at this point in time, because she's 43, it's to do weight loss surgery. And like this woman is, you know, maybe 40 pounds, 20 kilos or whatever overweight. So, um, and I assured her 
well, to my mind, that's not the answer, you know, for her, that's not, you know, for where she was at. Like, what are your thoughts, Jade? Like, you know, the idea, I mean, weight loss surgery from my, you know, I think it's a very, um, it's such a useful tool. It can definitely help improve health outcomes for so many people, but are we too quick to look at these sort of quick fixes? And of course, alongside that would be the new weight loss drugs, which seem to be um, uh, popular right now. Yeah, 100%. I think we're too quick. To me, drugs and surgery are, uh, you know, more heroic measures, more surgery. There's a lot, a lot of downside. And a lot, you know, we don't hear enough of me being in the medical field. Trust me when I say there is a lot of complications that go along uh, with those surgeries. Uh, you know, you're trading one problem for, you know, many other problems, but it is life saving for, you know, some people, obviously for the morbidly obese. Um, the new drugs, the GLP agonists and things like that, um, you know, those things hold a lot of promise and there is a place for them. However, uh, what we will see, uh, and this is a guess, by the way, we may not because we're still early in the research on this. But, you know, I can guarantee we've seen this story play out before. So we do have some past things to look that if you're not making the lifestyle changes, uh, these drugs are probably going to lose their potency. Uh, so to me, I'm all for Anything that someone needs to do, but in life, I do think we can say, and of course, you know, maybe you'll check me, we can all check and see if I was accurate, but I do think it's a universal truth that um, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. In life, these things uh, don't come, you can't really, there are no real shortcuts uh, here. So yes, use the, you know, I just think the problem is if you're going to do the surgery, if you're going to do the drugs, if any of us are going to do that, which, you know, from my perspective, I oftentimes like to think to myself, one day I might need to do these things. Like I, I'm running right now. You know, I'm a healthy guy. I work out. I eat relatively well. I'm pre-diabetic. I'm trying to do everything I can to, you know, why is this going on with me? Right. And, and I sometimes think to myself, you know, it's not because I'm not trying. And I do think that's true for a lot of people. However, I think it's a whole different ballgame when you're doing the things and, and in the process and doing the walking and avoiding the junk food and all that. And then you're like, you know, I've been doing a lot of things. Nothing's working. And I really am. Then maybe you want to add these things on. I just think they should be more of the last resort. And it's an opinion. And of course, this is my bias. I'm a natural medicine practitioner and, you know, a trainer my whole life and all that kind of stuff. So I am biased. But to me, that's just also good common sense. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense, Jade. Um, and I know that um, we're running up on time, but I've got like two more things to ask you. One, continuous glucose monitors. What do you reckon? I quite like them. Yeah, uh, same, same here. Here, here's the thing with all that kind of stuff. To me, any tool that you can use to look under the hood, right? Uh, of your metabolism to look inside and to see this is what's going on is going to be useful. Uh, you And when you match that with subjective ways you're feeling, you know, sleep, hunger, hunger, mood, energy, cravings, exercise, performance, exercise, recovery. And now we got things like HRV and glucose that we can see. And pretty soon we'll have hopefully be able to see insulin and ketones as well. All of this stuff is amazing and beautiful. And the more we can look under the hood and understand our unique metabolisms, the better. What's really cool about that is that we used to think, right, before continuous glucose monitors, and I've been doing this work for a long time, that we just didn't have CGMs. I would actually have people go home with the, the and prick their finger constantly. So I would have them prick their finger before a meal, uh, and then 30, 60, 90 minutes after a meal. Now we have the CGMs we can use. And I can tell you that I saw this a long time ago. We used to think that 
A food is just bad. White bread, bad, bad for everyone. Causes blood sugar excursions. You know, no one wants to eat that. Now we know, and there's, there's actually a study on this. You give 100 people white bread and, you know, a certain percentage of them respond just fine. Their hunger goes down, their blood sugars are, are stable, and it doesn't seem to have any adverse effect. And other people, they go, their blood sugars go sky high and they have hunger reactions. And this is true of lots of different foods. We even see this with dairy foods. For some people, dairy foods can be highly insulinogenic. Uh, so can protein. For other, for other people, they're not the same. So to me, being able to look under the hood and find the 10 best foods for Mickey or the 10 best foods for Jade in terms of blood sugar and hunger responses and things like that, is, it's unbelievably valuable. Uh, however, it's just a tool. It doesn't substitute anything else. So I think there's a danger when all of a sudden it's like, I'm doing the CGM diet, right? And I'm all I'm doing is paying attention to, to blood sugar in that way. That's potentially uh, problematic in my opinion. Yeah, no, that's um, that I agree with you on all of that. And there seems to be a lot of pushback in the medical field of of seemingly healthy people being interested in this stuff. And I just think that, well, we don't know whether or not your health, I mean, how do you, what is health, you know, like, so I think it's that if you've got the means and, and the ability to get one, then I think it could, it could tell you a lot, as you said. Now, Dave, my final question. Actually, let me yeah. just say one thing about that, Miggy, because I think that's a, that gives us a hint as to human psychology. Think about it. The people who are most interested in uh, CGMs, continuous glucose monitors and all this new tech are people who already identify as healthy, fit people. Isn't that interesting? Their identity is that they're a healthy, fit person. Therefore, they're interested in the things that can make them healthy and fit. That's something to think about for the people whose identity is not as a healthy, fit person. It's marketing 101 in a sense, but you would think that the people who aren't healthy would be most interested, but their identity isn't that. It just makes them feel bad about themselves, yes. so they don't do it. People like you and I do it. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're so right, Jade. And I don't even know how you would sort of move beyond that. It ultimately comes down to what people want to become in their authentic future selves. So I don't think you need to move beyond it necessarily. I think it's a good thing. But what it points to is for people who aren't excited about it, it tells them it's an identity issue. So what I really think the issue is, is that if you really want to get fit and healthy and lean and all those things, it's not your habits you need to change. It's not your diet you need to change. It's not your exercise you need to change. It's your identity that you need to change. And then your diet and your exercise and your habits change automatically. Yeah. Yeah, no, so true. Jade, one final question. Uh, you mentioned toxins and you're a naturopath, so I really actually want to get your get your thoughts on this. Well, firstly, I've got to say I'm quite happy that you mentioned that wine in the company of others is probably health promoting. So I'm a big believer in that. That really suits me. Um, but like there are so many things that I could be avoiding in my every day to day because it will literally kill me if I listen and and I, and from what I know about you know the health impact of so many things, I often get asked you know should I worry about this toxin or this toxin or or this thing that's out in the environment like from a naturopathic mind, what are the things that we actually should be focusing on? And I know this is actually very removed from everything we've spoken about right up until now, but this is my sort of side question. Yeah. Well, the first thing I'll say, and it's going to be highly controversial and it's okay. Just everyone who's listening to this can decide whether you agree with me or not. However, what I'm going to say, I stand by it completely. And it's an, in, in my opinion, it's an educated opinion. To me, the most powerful thing in medicine is the placebo effect, which is the belief effect. And to me, the number one toxin 
that we could have is the belief that there's toxins everywhere. Uh, this is putting us in a fight, flight, threat response. It is a needless stress. And we easily could believe the world is safe and beneficial and that placebo re response is probably protective. Now that's highly controversial. You can decide whether you agree with me or not. Now that being said, I don't wanna just leave us with that answer. There are real toxins I think that we need to be um, aware of that I think the evidence based is there for. And these are primarily the endocrine disrupting persistent organic pollutants. These would be uh, phthalates from plastics. These will be would be bisphenols. Uh, this would be things like uh, pesticides from glyphosate and things like this. We know they're endocrine disruptors. We know that they are um, you know, um, atrazine, you know, we know that that is having impact in uh, animals lowering testosterone and uh, disrupting estrogen and, uh, you know, having fertility issues. We know that persistent organic pollutants like, um, you know, phthalates and things like that uh, can uh, interrupt thyroid function. We know these things. Uh, and, and so from my perspective, these are the things that probably there's a good evidence base there. So what does that mean? The best way to get rid of these things uh, is to not take them in. So that means, uh, and this is good for the environment as well. It means like using glass, not plastics, using silicone, not plastics, right? Um, these kinds of things, you know, not heating things in plastics, not avoiding plastic bottles, you know, all of these kinds of things. Glass, a silicone, aluminum, you know, cans, things like that. Those things are probably things you should uh, be doing. Uh, whole foods, by the way, if you're if you're you know doing those kinds of things, you're avoiding these things. Um, also, you're decreasing uh, you know sort of the trash, and you're helping the environment as well. Organic foods, if possible, uh, you know, because of the pesticides. And this also has, again, as next level humans who are aspiring to be next level humans, our choices matter. Remember back, you know, 20, 30 years ago, whole foods wasn't a thing. Organic foods weren't really a thing. Um, now they are. And now we have to, of course, we as consumers, we have to get even more diligent to make sure, you know, like, what does it mean? What does grass fed really mean? What does natural really mean? Your marketer. So we have to be on top of that. But I would say the endocrine disorder disrupting chemicals are the big ones. And of course, alcohol. You know, if you're going to complain about toxins, alcohol is a big one. However, even alcohol in moderation, as we talked about when with people is probably not that big of a deal. The other thing I would say is sweat therapy is one of the best ways we know to get rid of these, uh, these persistent organic pollutants. And so if you really want to be worried about something, I would not be worried about, you know, Wi-Fi and that kind of stuff yet. And, you know, we have no evidence that that's really a thing. Of course, a lot of people will yell and scream about it and claim we do. You know, I spend my whole life doing this stuff. I just don't think it's there yet. I could, I'm willing to be proven wrong. I think all the evidence is there, though, for pesticides, uh, glyphosate, atrazine, uh, chemicals of industry, phthalates, bisphenols. These things, in my mind, are best avoided. However, they're impossible, by the way, to avoid. And so you, if you start stressing yourself out, that might be worse than the toxin itself. So just remember, do the best you can and understand the placebo effect. The belief effect is the most powerful thing in all of medicine. So perhaps what we perceive about our diet. And I'll give you an interesting study by Halia Crum, who looked at this, who basically they called the milkshake study. She basically gave two groups of people a milkshake. One group of people got a diet. It was labeled diet, low calorie milkshake. The other group got decadent, high calorie, fatty milkshake. And then they measured their 
uh, hunger hormone responses, ghrelin and cortisol and things like that. So obviously the people who got the diet milkshake were hungrier and their hunger hormones went up. And the people that got the heavy milkshake with lots of calories, their hunger hormones went down. The problem was, is that there was the exact same milkshake in both groups. All The only thing was that the marketing was different. The belief was different and it had real physiological effects. Now, I would say this absolutely happens. If you believe you're getting poisoned by something, you may indeed uh, be causing some negative physiology in your body that you don't need to have uh, there. And so to me, yes, avoid these things, do the best you can really look after the persistent organic pollutants, you know, regulate, you know, the things that you can do. But if you are convinced that everything's a toxin, you may be creating a toxic environment in your metabolism. Yeah. Jay, what a great answer. Thank you. And I think you, <laughs> you pretty much covered up the, the field of, uh, like, not the field of um, naturopathy, but that whole area, like so beautifully in about three minutes. So that was amazing. No. <laughs> um, Thank you. So, you know, if people, obviously, if people were a little bit disappointed that we did not talk about diet and exercise, well, they needn't be because you share so much on social media. Like almost every sort of second post is literally saying, look, if you need, if you want to lose weight, you do these things. Like it's all out there. You've got your books, you've got your courses. Um, Jade, can you just, for people who are unfamiliar with you, let people know how they can sort of find you? Yeah, sure. So, uh, and Maggie, thank you for having me. I really appreciate this. Um, I'm at Jade Tita on all social media, uh, Jade Like the Stone. And uh, my websites are uh, jadetita.com and nextlevelhuman.com. And I have a podcast as well called The Next Level Human Podcast that uh, really delves into all the things that actually Mickey and I discussed, uh, you know, from uh, all the four jobs, health and fitness, uh, finance, uh, uh, personal relationships and purpose and meaning. Yeah, no, I love that. Jaden, of course, yes, I love your podcast. I love catching up with it weekly. Um, thank you so much for your time, Jade. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Mickey. It's been great being here. All righty. Hopefully, you enjoyed that. And as I said, Jade has been a mentor for me. And a lot of my insights that I have have been from the learnings that Jade has. And he's got a ton of both free and paid resources. So practitioners, but also just the general population, if you've got any interest in this area at all, totally recommend that you dive into his content. Um, at the very least, follow him on Instagram. Alrighty, next week on the podcast, I have Dr. Mike T. Nelson who is another person who I think really highly of in terms of his knowledge and information. I have a chat to Mike next week on the podcast. And if you are wondering how to get a kickstart on 2024, head to my website, mickeywillardin.com, sign up to Fat Loss in the Festive Season. It's my webinar that is coming to you Sunday, November the 12th. It is free of charge and I'm going to share with you my best tips and strategies for surviving the holiday season and also just getting ahead of your 2024 fat loss goals. All right, team, you can catch me over on Instagram and Twitter. It's not really Twitter anymore, is it? At Mickey Willardin. You can head to Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition or head to my website mickeywillardin.com sign up to Fat Loss in the Festive Season. Looking forward to seeing you there. 
Have a great week. Speak soon. Bye-bye.